0: If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, chapter number is the big number and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. If you do not have a Bible, we invite you to take a copy from under your seat and you'll find Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 14 on page 945 of your Bible. Let's read God's word. in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps all of us know that person, we'll we'll, we'll call him a better than person. Maybe it's someone you work with, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's you. And it's, you know, it's like, it's Monday morning, you come back into the office, you get back to work, and you say, oh my goodness, you won't believe this restaurant that my wife and I ate at this weekend. It was so good. Uh, the, the steak was so juicy. The appetizers were fantastic. The service was great. And that person, what do they say? Oh, you think that place is good? I've been to a better place. It's like, can't you just let me have this moment of having a good restaurant? Or maybe you just had the worst weekend of your life. Your dog ran away. Your your basement flooded. You just found out that your home insurance rates are skyrocketing, and, and everything is bad. And you, like, oh man, I had a really rough week. You think your week was bad? You ought to hear about mine. Right? We all know the better than person. Whatever we do. Whatever we have, whatever we've seen, it doesn't compare to what they've got. For good or for ill, they're better than us. And it drives us crazy, right? What do we want to say to that better than person? Sometimes we just want to say, shut up, I get it. And maybe after nearly a year and a half in preaching through Hebrews, when I've stood up here Sunday and Sunday and Sunday and said that Jesus is better. Maybe you're like, okay, Clayton, I get it. We get it. Jesus is better. But if Jesus really is better, if Jesus is better than Moses, if he is a better prophet, if he is better than angels, if he is a better priest, if he is a better sacrifice, then that will change the way that we live. If Jesus is the better priest, as we've seen, and if Jesus brings us into a better covenant, a new and a better covenant, then that is going to change the way we live our lives. Church, we are living in the new covenant. We are living a life where Jesus is a better sacrifice, where Jesus is a better priest, where Jesus is a better temple, where he is better than Moses. And that is going to change the way that we live. As I was getting ready for this sermon today, it struck me that nearly eight years ago, the very first sermon I preached at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church was from... The text that I just read, Hebrews chapter 9. And I preached that text at the time because I was coming on to be the worship leader or the song leader, whatever you want to call the, what, what, what I, I do here. And I wanted to give a, like a rationale, a foundation for the way I think about worship leadership, the way I think about what we do when we gather together on a Sunday morning, And I am convinced that Hebrews chapter 9, uh, from beginning to end of this chapter, and we'll do the second half of this chapter uh, later, that it is perhaps the greatest text in all of scriptures, in all the Bible, that tell us about worship. That tell us about worship. We see uh, that the word worship is. It appears in this chapter many times, even in these 14 verses, it appears many times, even in verse 1, again in verse 10, and then, and then later in verse 14, it, 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 it hints at it. But this text is about worship. So I'm going to lay out to you the, the, the major point of the sermon right at the get-go, okay? And it's going to be kind of like a foundation, and we're going to try and build up everything off that. So pay attention now. And then you can tune out if you want. I hope not. But this is what this text is about. This text is telling us that because of what Christ has done, because of who Jesus is, and because of that we're brought into a new covenant with him, life in the new covenant is a life of worship whereby we honor and serve Jesus Christ, our Lord. What is living in the new covenant? It is living a life of worship. Now, that can lead us to ask the question, well, what is worship? What does that mean? And there's lots of definitions out there, but my favorite comes from this book. It's called Engaging with God. It's by, I think, the the theologian par excellence of the book of Hebrews right now. His name is David Peterson. And this is what he says says, I will test the hypothesis that the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with Him on the terms that He proposes and in the way that He alone makes possible. What is worship, according to David Peterson, and I think he demonstrates it here, is that it's an engagement with God. It's a coming together of the worshiper, that is, you and I, and the worshiped one which is the true and the living God. It's how we come together in a relationship. It's how we come together and are tied together. But the other side of that is it's a coming together between the worshiper and the one who is worshipped in a way and a manner in which the one who is worshipped sets out. Think about that. We have been reminded time and time again this morning in our service, in our scripture readings, in our songs, in our prayer of confession, that we are separated from God. Our sin separates us from Him. If we are going to then come into engagement with Him, if the worshiper and the one who is worshipped are to come together, what has to happen? That thing that separates us must be dealt with. If you, if you think about, the, the, I, I remember the, the, the gospel tract that was given to me as a child and that, that first really and clearly demonstrated the gospel to me. There was people on one side, God on the other, and there was a big chasm in the middle. And it showed that no matter what I did, I could not engage with God. I could not get across to the other side to be with Him until the cross comes in and bridges that gap that the cross is what God has done to provide for me to engage with God. The cross is what allows me to be in that relationship with God, which is to say that the new covenant of Jesus' blood is how we worship him. Our text today is going to explain and further explain this act of worship, this engagement with God to us, by, by talking to us about worship in the first covenant. That is, talking about worship in the old covenant. And, and we talked a little bit about this in our uh, sermon on Hebrews chapter 8. But now he is going to go in further detail. So verses 1 through 5 begin by telling us about worship in the old covenant. And the first thing we see is that there were regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. He doesn't say the first covenant had regulations for worship. He says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And that's his way of saying that the first covenant had regulations for worship, even it had regulations for worship. So we are to imply from that, we're to take from that, that the new covenant also has regulations for worship, as we will see shortly. It would be like, you know, maybe you're going into work and there's a bad accident, and everyone is running late. Everyone's running late. And whenever you get there, and you say, "I'm sorry for running late," and your boss says, "Ah, it's okay." Even Jerry is running late, and Jerry's Mister Dependable. You know, it's 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 a way of saying and comparing that the two covenants both have regulations for worship, but the regulations for the first covenant are material. They are external. They're they're, they're tactile. There are things that we can see and things that we can hold. And in talking about the regulations, what does he do? He talks about a tent. He's referring there specifically to the tabernacle. He's, and then he talks about the lampstand, the, the table of the bread of presence, and this was the holy place. Behind that second curtain, it was called the most holy place, and there's the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant and the golden urn that has the manna that was collected, it has the tablets of the covenant, and it has the golden cherubim, and it has the mercy seat. Now, whenever we think about these things, whenever we think about the tabernacle, our, our first thought doesn't go to worship, right? We just think of that as architecture or, or a really nice building. But if you were in my Exodus Bible study, whenever Moses went to the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. What was the reason Moses said to let my people go? Does anyone know? Michael knows, yeah. That they might go into the desert for three days. Moses initially asked for three days. Let them go into the desert for three days so that they may worship me. God demanded that his people were let go. Why? So that they might worship him. Pharaoh denies, he denies, he denies, he denies. He says, no, I'm not going to let them go. God demonstrates his victory. God passes over his people and spares them. And what do the people do? They go into the desert and they worship him. How do they worship him? They build a tabernacle. They build the tabernacle. They build all the furniture. It, It says here multiple times that preparations were made. This is the work of the people was done so that the temple, or the tabernacle rather, might be constructed. Now, he kind of glosses over all of this here at the end of verse 5, where he mentions the tabernacle, he talks about all the different furniture in it, and then he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So if you want a really detailed explanation of the symbolism behind all the different pieces of furniture, you're not going to get that today. Because Hebrews doesn't give us that. He says, you know what? I'm not going to talk about these things in detail right now. I think one of the reasons for that is that it gives us an early date of Hebrews. I think that Hebrews has an early date of being written. He doesn't need to tell these people what these things look like. Why? Probably because they have seen them in their lifetime and, or, or are at least familiar with them in the temple. His, his main purpose here is not to say, The the symbolism of the uh, the lampstand and the altar of incense, although those things do have symbolism. But suffice it to say, he wants them to conjure in their mind the image of the tabernacle and the temple. Now, the tabernacle and the temple, as Eric alluded to earlier, if you were in the Old Covenant and you saw it, what would be your first thought? your first thought would be that is where the presence of the Lord dwells. That is where the presence of the Lord dwells. And that is because as you study what the tabernacle looked like, as you study what the temple looked like, you begin to understand that it was made to look like the heavenly places. Think about it. You have large curtains, large panels of fabric that are made with deep purple, dark purple fabric and sewn into it are images of stars in golden thread. And then what the curtain was hanging on were little polished brass rings. And those brass rings hung around the rods. And what held those rods up were columns and pillars and supports. And on top of those were burnished gold. Gold and as the light from the fires of the people of Israel would hit the light, and it would reflect off of all of these beautiful things, what did it look like? It looked like the night sky. It looked like the heavens up above where God dwells. About a year ago, we took Gwen and Lucy and Corey and Utero to a camping trip. We went to Turkey Run State Park in Indiana, and in the little park ranger station, they had a I'm just going to call it an old school planetarium. You know the ones where you go in the room and they try to make it as dark as possible and then they fire up that machine and it takes it like 10 minutes to get warmed up and then it projects the light of the stars up on the ceiling. And the, the park ranger was, was taking us through the constellations that we can see in the night sky and we're like, oh, that's neat, look at that. And it would move across and it was really neat. We learned a little bit about astronomy and, and, and the night sky. But then that night, once we got dinner all cleaned up, once everything is set, what did Gwen and Lucy want to do? They didn't want to go back and look at the planetarium. They wanted to go out and they wanted to sit with our backs on a park bench looking up into the sky. And it's amazing how much brighter those stars were. It's amazing how much grander the sky was, how much wider it was. You see, the planetarium was pointing us to the night sky. But that night, we got to take in the night sky. In the same way, the tabernacle was a little bit like a planetarium. When you look at it, you are to be reminded of the heavenly places. And in fact, in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 17, again in the Psalms, we are reminded time and time again that the Lord does not dwell in a place that is built by human hands. Where does he dwell? In the heavenly places. He dwells above the skies. The author of Hebrews, and in fact, Moses, whenever he built the temple and the tabernacle, as we will see later after the pattern that he was shown, it was to remind the people that God dwells far away from us, He dwells in the heavenly places. But the next part about these regulations, in verse 6, these preparations, these things that you have done, these works that you have done, these works of your hands, those having been made, what next? What is the other part of this worship? Well, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people. The symbolism of the priest going into the first section was that he might go there, they might go there. There was a great number of priests. They would go here, and they would keep the altar of incense lit. They would keep all the lights burning. They would keep the table of the showbread filled. They were going in regularly. That is daily. They were going in here. But it was only the priest's. It was only the priests. And in fact, he tells us that because this first section was still there, it indicates to us that the way into the holy place was not yet open. You could not get to the holy place. Why? Because there was separation. There was a separation of the heavens. But not only that, the the, the high priest, he can only go into the holiest of places. How often? Once. Once a year, he offers sin, uh, sacrifice for his own sins. Right, The priests are good guys. These are the holy people of Israel. They're the ones set apart for service to God. And even he must offer sacrifice for his own sins. But he must also offer sins for the people so that he might go into the Holy of Holies. And all of these, we're reminded that for the priest to perform his duty for the priest to worship, for him to serve God, blood must be shed. You see, the, 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 the tabernacle and, and the, the furniture in the temple, those remind us that God's presence is there and that it is separated from us. But the second part of this, where the ritual duties must be performed and blood must be sp- uh, spilled and shed, it reminds us that the consequences of our sin are great. And that we need a Savior. That we need atonement. We need to be made one with God. The Old Covenant reminds us that as long as it was still standing, we could not have access to God. Now put that into context. What is Hebrews has told us, I think, four times already. It's going to tell us four more times as we study it says to draw near to God with confidence. Draw near to God. But what does the Old Covenant show us? We cannot draw near to God. Why? Because the earthly holy place remains standing. We are still separated from God. Now, I don't want us to think that Whenever God gave the instructions for the tabernacle, remember, God gave the instructions for the tabernacle. God told Moses, God showed Moses what it was to look like. God gave Moses the instructions for how the blood was to be shed and the sacrifices that were to be had. God gave those. But they're a placeholder. They're a placeholder. Look in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings. And listen to this, regulations. It's that same word that's in verse 1. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That is to say that the old covenant, yes, it was necessary. It was necessary for the priests to shed the blood of goats and calves and bulls to purify their bodies so that they might enter in. But these were regulations for the body. These were external. And none of these cleanse or perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now this word conscience was, was coming into usage about this time in, in, in biblical Greek language. And, and what it really means is it means the deep feelings of guilt, the deep sense of guilt that we have for our sin. It's what's inside of us. The the inability to cleanse our conscience was the inability to remove the stain of sin and guilt. This is not external. It's internal. Everything in the Old Covenant was meant to purify, was meant to cleanse externally. But it could not cleanse internally. All of these things were for the purification, for the cleansing of the body. But verse 11 begins to turn it, to give us great hope. Verse 11 is where we see this shift from what the Old Covenant gave to us, what worship in the Old Covenant looked like, meaning what engagement with God looked like in the Old Covenant, which was through a representative, once a year through the shedding of blood, might go before the presence of God. But now... We have a new and a better high priest. And because his person and his work are better, our engagement with God is thus better. Let's read verses 11 through 14 again, and then we'll unpack them together. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We'll pause right there and unpack this. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Christ has come, he died, he shed his blood on the cross for us, and that he is the one who brings us the good and the greater things that are to come. Because Christ didn't just enter into the holy place at the temple. We know, in fact, that he did not bodily go into the holy of holies. He wasn't allowed. He could not have. But what we do know is that Christ has gone before us into the heavenly places. That is, before the throne of God. Jesus, by means of his own shed blood, has become a perfect sacrifice And he has entered the tent, the perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Now this phrase, not made with hands, uh, not of this creation, is used repeatedly throughout the Bible. Again, it's used in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 17, where Stephen in 7 and Paul in verse 17 are pointing us to the reality that the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. It's not something that's made with human hands. It's not a flashy building. It's not not a gaudy structure. It's not even a powerful organization that that looks good on paper. But it is internal. The kingdom of God is the church. It is us. It is you and I. And that reflects back to Daniel chapter 2. Perhaps you remember Daniel chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. And there was a statue and it was made of the four different metals. And we're always trying to figure out, well, what are the different metals? Which of the kingdoms are the different metals? Is it Rome and, and Persia? And is the United States one of them? Whatever. We don't focus nearly enough on the second part of that dream. Because what happens to that statue in the second part of the dream? It's shattered. And what is it shattered by? A stone that was cut, not With human hands. That is to say that Jesus Christ and his kingdom, Jesus Christ and his work, are what crushes every other kingdom in this world. Jesus has done something for us that is spiritual. It is internal. Think about in Galatians, where it says that we are circumcised not with a circumcision made by human hands, but a circumcision Of the heart. Jesus Christ, as the great high priest, goes before God's presence. He goes through the tent, not made with human hands, once for all. And because of this, He has secured for us an eternal redemption. That means it's finished. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That Jesus Christ, through the shedding of his blood, has secured for us this eternal redemption. By his blood, he has purchased us for himself. By his blood, he has achieved full forgiveness of sins. Jesus is our great high priest who redeems us through his blood. But the gospel and this eternal redemption, it goes on to show us something that's even greater than that. It's even greater than that. What can be greater than eternal redemption? Well, he says the sprinkling of the defiled person with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of, hector, uh, of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. That's exactly what he says earlier that uh, about the regulations for the body. The word body there in the Greek is the same word for flesh. He's, he says that these sacrifices, they were good, they, they were sufficient, for cleansing the flesh. They cleansed the flesh. They made it possible for uh, the, the worshiper to worship God in the Old Covenant. But verse 14 says that how much more will the blood of Christ, which is far much more excellent, the blood of Christ which goes into the true heavenly place, which goes into the Holy of Holies, which goes into the, the presence of God, which has made an eternal redemption, How much more will this blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience? Church, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all of our guilt. I don't know everything that you have done in your life. I don't know every sin that you still feel like and or or still replay in your mind and say, I can never go before God because this sin was so terrible. But Hebrews tells us Hebrews tell, tells us that the perfect blood of Christ, without blemish, that was shed for us, it purifies our conscience. It purifies our conscience. The guilt is gone. The sin has been paid for because of what Christ has done. But it's not just that our conscience is purified. He says that our conscience is purified from dead works to serve the living God. Now remember, this is, this is priestly language. What were the priests to do every day? They were serving in the presence of God. They were, that, that's the word that is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the work of the priests. They served the living God. They went before His presence to glorify Him, to go before the people. And now... Paul in the book of Hebrews is telling us that because of what Christ has done, because of his better blood, because he has gone into the better tent, the perfect tent, not made with human hands, we are to serve the living God. What that means then is that because of the blood of Christ, it's not just that we are forgiven, which is great, but it's because of the blood of Christ that we are made true worshipers. That is because the blood of Christ, we are brought into engagement with God, whereby we glorify him as he says we ought, as he says we ought in a way that he has made plain to us. Now, if we think about serving, really it's obedience, but it's also an expression of love. Now, imagine if I wanted to serve my wife and I wanted to do something really, really nice for her okay, and I, was, I'm i going to serve you today and I'm going to go on like a six-hour bike ride. Well, that's what I want to do, all right? Now, I, if I'm saying I'm serving her by doing that or if I'm saying I'm going to serve you today by making my favorite meal, am I really serving her? Or am I doing what I want to do? If I wanted to serve my wife, I'm going to put aside my own desires. I'm going to put aside my own selfish goals and ambitions. And I'm going to say, well, why don't you go on a bike ride today and I'll watch the kids. What do you want to have for dinner? What sounds good to you? In the same way, for us to serve the living God, it is not to do what we want to do and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to glorify you here. To serve the living God is to live a life of obedience. That means that we ought to seek to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ought to not take the name of the Lord in vain. We ought to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But also flowing from that is how we relate to other people. Have you ever thought about that? That whenever we love others, whenever we are gentle towards our wives, whenever we are loving to our children, whenever we are kind to a coworker or a neighbor, we are serving the living God. Remember the priestly function of the priest was to go before God, but it was to go before God on behalf of the people. There's both a, a vertical and a horizontal dimension to their service to God. In the same way, our worship has both a vertical where we honor God and a horizontal dimension whereby we serve and we love others. The blood of Christ doesn't just save us. It doesn't just punch a ticket for us to heaven. The blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ makes us worshipers. It makes us those who serve the living God. Now this is important to understand that true Christian worship, and and, and David Peterson outlines it so, so beautifully in this book, but in talking about the book of Hebrews, he says this, Hebrews presents the most complete and fully integrated theology of worship in the New Testament. All the important categories of the Old Testament thinking on the subject, like sanctuary, sacrifice, altar, priesthood, and covenant, are taken up and related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. More than any other New Testament document, Hebrews makes it clear that the inauguration of the new covenant by Jesus means the fulfillment and replacement of the whole pattern of approach to God under the Mosaic covenant. The writer proclaims the end of that earthly cult, that earthly practice of worship, by expounding Christ's work as the ultimate heavenly worship. Hebrews is telling us in this passage that because of what Christ has done, our entire life is going to look different. The entire way by which we relate to God, we engage with him, is different. So when we think about worship, we ought to think about it, I I, I think, really in two primary ways. And we tend to kind of oscillate like a pendulum between the two. One, we think that worship is, is just you know coming to a service and singing three songs, maybe giving a tithe, hearing a prayer, and then that's it. And then the rest of the week, that's all good. But what did the priests do? They went only into the presence of God, only to serve him once a year. But what about the new covenant? Christ has gone in and he has taken away that. Now we are in the presence of God every single day. Therefore, Christian, to live in the new covenant is to serve God every single day. Worship is the life lived in obedience for the glory of God. Life in the new covenant, life a life of worship is purity in thought, in speech, in mind every single day. Worship is humbleness towards our neighbor. It's what we do every single day to glorify God and to serve Him. But before we think that that's all worship is, right? that worship is just how we live our lives and it doesn't really matter, worship is also what happens here today on a Sunday morning when the body of believers gathers together. Remember that worship is an engagement with God. It is where God comes down to us to meet with Him, to have our life integrated into Him and who He is, to be wrapped up and tied up in Him. And how is that done? How are we able to draw near to God? Through the blood of Christ. So when we come to church on Sundays, whenever we gather together as a body of believers, what are we doing? we are rehearsing to ourselves the good news that our sins have been dealt with because Jesus Christ has died on the cross. And that because Jesus is a better sacrifice, a better priest, and that he lives forever for us to intercede, that we are united to God. You see, worship on Sunday helps plug us deep into Christ so that we might live a life of service to God each and every day. Jesus is better than you name it. Fill in the blank. But in particular, Paul was writing to a group of people who, if they weren't seeing at that moment, if this was after 70 AD, they had seen a magnificent temple. The temple in Jerusalem was truly magnificent. It was It was beautiful. And there was certainly a temptation to say, I hear you saying that Jesus is better than. I hear you, I hear you, whatever. But that temple, it looks pretty good. Well, that temple was destroyed. That temple has not been rebuilt. But church, the temple of Christ's body was destroyed. It was crucified. And three days later, it was raised up and now sits enthroned forever, having defeated sin, death, and the devil. We do not need a temple. We do not need a gaudy showing of power. We do not need external, material, physical things. We have Jesus Christ, who has gone before us through the tent and the tabernacle, not made with human hands, who has circumcised our heart, not with his hands, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we might serve the living God. Church, may our hearts be full of grateful obedience to Christ for what he has done as he brings us into his covenant as new worshipers in the new covenant. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for all that you have done to demonstrate to us your glory. We thank you for the beauty of the temple, but we thank you ultimately for the beauty of the heavenly places, We thank you that while we know that we are separated from you by those heavenly places because of our sin, we thank you that Christ is a great high priest who shed his own blood so that we might be saved. And he shed his blood so that our consciences might be sprinkled, might be purified. And he shed his blood so that we might serve you, be brought to life and no longer have dead works, but now have hearts that are living to serve the living God. I pray that as people see us as believers, that as people see us as members of Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church, and that they will see those who are true worshipers, those who go before God, those who have engaged with God because of the work of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.